I want to make a quick confession tonight. I attempted to get other people to teach tonight, and no one wanted to. I thought it was a fairly calm night tonight. I mean, we're not going to talk about anything controversial at all at the end of 1 Corinthians. And so I figured I tried to get Landry. Landry said he had no obligations. And so I began to tell him some of the issues that might arise, and he suddenly had obligations to attend to tonight. Um, Alan has left, as you can see. He is not going to be a part of what we're doing tonight. And so it'll be a, we ought to have a good time. All right, here's our game plan tonight. We're going to talk about Esther. We are not going to start in Job, okay? Putting Esther and Job together, especially the first few chapters of Job, is like trying to uh, squeeze too much in. You just can't do it, all right? So we will discuss Job in totality next Wednesday night because you'll finish Job in the next week. And then so that will give us, we'll talk about Esther tonight and Job next week. Now, if we just, you just have no questions and no, and we get to the end of the night and we've got you know, 20 minutes left, we can start on Job. For those of you that just are, you know, we got to stay on schedule exactly right. But uh, that's the plan. And then, of course, we're finishing up 1 Corinthians. So questions over the whole book of 1 Corinthians uh, will be available. I think we actually finished 1 Corinthians today, right? And so uh, we'll do 2 Corinthians or starting that next week. Uh, next week after Job, we'll be in uh, some of the wisdom literature. Job is considered wisdom literature. Uh and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. It's considered like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Solomon. So we'll be, obviously we won't do Psalm and Proverbs because we're doing it. So we'll have Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then we'll get into the major prophets. So uh, that's kind of the game plan over the next few days and weeks. So what questions or observations do you have about the book of Esther? It's tough being a woman. Those of you that had not read the story of Esther in a while, what surprised you? Anything? The the uh, you talking about when they get dressed up for the king? When they have the they get yeah. Well, for that particular king, it wasn't necessarily purification as much as beautification, right? And so as he's getting ready to see these women, he wants them to be. It's like. Somebody that competes in the Miss America pageant, and they take it's kind of similar to what it was, although the contest itself was a little different, right? Uvashti, it's because they were all drunk men. Yeah, here's here's a couple of things to remember. Okay, this is a story about a Persian king, and so just because the stories are included does not mean that they are given approval. So just because it tells you there was a party that lasted for 180 days and then they threw the real party, right? I mean, it says they had a party for 180 days and then they invited everybody and he said there's no cutoff on the alcohol, right? We're not stopping alcohol in the seventh inning or the third quarter or whatever. It's drink as much as you want. And so, and that was just for men. I mean, it says for everybody, but it's the men, they're kind of there. Just because it then says he brings Vashti in and, Wants or wants to bring her in and parade her, it doesn't mean that that's okay. Um, just because he puts out a decree that says that no women ought to talk back to their husbands like that doesn't mean that the Bible's endorsing that. It's telling the story here. Okay, It's not like a letter from Paul where Paul says, women don't talk back to your husbands. I mean, you know, somebody's going to ask something. They're about to talk here in the middle. Kathy, were you? Well, they were having a party. It just depends on, you know, 
there's some ambiguity in that first part, and that's okay. They they were having a party, but the, the understanding is their party wasn't as raucous as the men's. What's that? Yes, they were having a banquet. But it also says the men were having a banquet just with lots of alcohol, right? No, no I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that that's... I mean, it would have been... She would have... If the men are going to party for 180 days, the wives had to do something. Yes, Miss Teresa. Yeah, he... We don't know a whole lot about him other than he's a bad guy. I mean, other than he saw... I mean, what you obviously see that he is a proud man who is attempting to climb his way through political ways however he can. And he sees as this nuisance, this pest... Uh, basically, the whole thing happens because Mordecai won't bow to him. I mean, you get, I mean, and you think about the hubris, the pride of a man that says, because this one man won't bow, I'm going to wipe out a people. Um, and so we, we don't know except that he was somehow in the court and had somehow given enough good advice to kind of raise through it. But uh, we don't have a whole lot of background other than that. We do have some background on Xerxes. Um, he is is written about in other historical things. He invaded Greece uh, around this time, a little bit before this, I believe, or a little after. He was later assassinated in a plot similar to what is described here. Um, some of his people assassinated him. And his son, Artaxerxes, which we saw in Nehemiah, is his son that takes over after him. So we do know a little bit about Xerxes, but Haman we don't have a whole lot about. Yeah, and it gives Esther's name, but then it gives her Persian name. Yeah, you ever heard the phrase "laws of the Medes and Persians"? Some of you in history and those kind of things. He invokes that here. What that meant was it is an irrevocable law that when you made it, there were no vetoes, there were no going backs, there was no next time we voted out. It was. It is. That's why he says I can't take back what I've commanded. But I can command something else. So, yeah. And in another little more grisly twist, he builds a stake to, right, skewer Mordecai on, and he himself ends up skewered on the stake, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, Miss Dyer. Yeah. I don't, yeah. They, figured, they, they had a good way of figuring out how to do dispose of bodies back then, right? 75 feet and Geronimo, let it go. Yeah, they didn't hang them. No. Now, they may have had, they may be, refer, you know, that translation may be attempting to describe the workings around it because it may have been difficult in that day and time to have a pole stayed straight up without some sort of support on the side. I don't know. That's a tall skewering. What else? What did you notice in... Esther is his family that that suffered. Yeah, one, you know, I've preached. I don't know that I've. I don't think I did it here. I don't. I'm getting like Paul. I don't remember where I baptized. I don't remember where I preached things. You know, between camps and prisons and churches and. Uh, I've preached a Father's Day message on Mordecai. Because there's that phrase in there at the beginning of the book when her parents die and he takes her in as his own. And then when she goes to start getting ready, he checks on her daily. 
to make sure she's okay. Just that devotion that it wasn't even wasn't even his daughter. I mean, now it, it was a close relative. It wasn't like it was you know distant relative. But uh, at four o'clock, we're studying the book of James, and you know it says in the book of James in chapter one that this is religion that God sees as pure and good, and that's to take care of the widow, widows and the orphans, the fatherless and the widow. Well, that's what Mordecai did. He took this young girl in, happened to be beautiful. He helps her get to the place that she needs to be. And then he really gives her that strong encouragement when she doesn't want to do what needs to be done. Right? says that famous line, well, for such a time as this, you've been made queen. Anybody uh, put off a little bit by the way she was made queen? Well, they didn't. It was who he liked. Now, and I mean, you know, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell, but you know they prepared for a year to spend one night with him. And then he determined after that one night whether they got to come back. Yeah, they, yeah they, they, he separated them. But when, when Esther came along, it was done. It was kind of like Esther was the one. Um, so, but it, it is... People, when they when they talk about Esther, it is a beautiful love story. They don't talk about that part of Esther a lot, you know, because it's kind of one of those things that is. I mean, if they, can you imagine if that happened today? Say, so, well, I'm going to choose a wife. I'm going to prepare for a year to get ready to spend one night with me. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't put it past our society to have a television show. You may not show it, but something like that in the future. But. Uh, they might even call it after a biblical kind of name, but I mean it's because it's here. But um, and that's the name of the movie. There's a movie done two, what, four or five years ago about this, and it's called One Night with the King. Right now, when I'm going to guarantee most Bible-believing conservative Christians, when they heard that, did not think of what that meant biblically. They're thinking of a romantic beachside dinner with the king. Yeah. Well, she was just. Here's the thing: is interesting. She wasn't. She apparently wasn't killed. She just was banished from him. Yeah, I don't. She may not. She may not have been. She may have been that upset. And may you know. Lots of discussion in this group about eunuchs, right? Eunuchs took care of. Them. Why did they have eunuchs there? Yeah, because you could trust them around the harem. So it's a. It, you know. The Bible is a very adult book. You have to be careful who you say that around. My music minister in Ripley one time told his son they were going to a movie, him and his mommy, and he said, well, I want to go. And he said, well, you can't. It's an adult movie. So he went around church the next day. Mommy and Daddy went and watched adult movies last night. <laughs> you have to be careful there. But it is a very adult book. I mean, it's, it is not for the faint of heart. I mean, just think in the book of Esther, which most people consider one of the best, uh, alongside of Ruth, you know, these true love stories in Scripture. They are, it's not really a love story, but it's a, it's a neat, it's got some romance, it's got some, some intrigue. But what do you, you've got one-night auditions with the king, guys getting skewered on the poles, and thousands killed, right? You made a true movie of this book. It's not a G-rated movie. But, yeah, First Corinthians isn't. I think that's an interesting question. I think in some ways it was a reminder. You have to remember that these books were put together when people would have had memories 
And she would have been called Esther. She would not have been called. Now, in the Jewish community, there may have been some description. The reason this book is in the can, let's talk about that for a minute, because, you know, this is one of the most controversial books to be in the Old Testament. And the reason is it never mentions the name of God. Okay, I'm going to give you something in a minute uh, about something that God is all through this book. It's just not his name mentioned. But the reason that they have this book is to explain a festival. I'm not saying that it's not true. It is a true story. But they get to the end of the book and they say, that's why we celebrate Purim. Right? I mean, that's why we celebrate Purim. This Purim, the reason is because of the rescue of the Jews and all of that. And so they're setting the story in the Babylonian or Persian captivity. And as a result, they're going to use the Persian kind of understanding there. That's my guess. I, I haven't seen a good explanation why it remains. Right. I think it was a reminder to the people of God's movement even among the Persians in rescuing them. Well, yeah, but when this book was first written, it would have been written to a almost exclusively Jewish audience. It's pre-New Testament when Judaism was concerned. Yeah, no, they definitely changed that part of the part of the rule of captivity is when you came to be captive, you got a new name because they wanted to um, re-doctrinate you or indoctrinate you in their way. And so Balshazar becomes Meshach, Shadrach. It's not Abednego. It's one of the other two. So they rename them because their name is their identity. You have to remember that in the Old Testament especially, your name is much more your identity than it is today. You know, I mean, I I went and saw uh, the Steelman baby today, and they named her Anna Kate, a lovely, beautiful name. But they did not determine her character to give her a name. Maybe it was a message. I mean, all three of our children have reasons behind their names. I mean, Elijah, Eli, is the Lord, Yahweh is my God. And we, because of the way that God delivered us from not being able to have children, we wanted a declaration of who God is. And Yahweh is my God. So that's Elijah. And Luke, we've always loved the book of Luke. His middle name is Jet after his maiden, uh, Susan's maiden name. Madeline is named after Susan's mom, who had passed away, obviously, a little before we found, or, you know, about a year before we found out we were having a little girl. So we have meanings to the names. But the meanings aren't like Lyle doesn't tell you a thing about me. You may know what Lyle means? From the island. Now I am from Dyersburg, Tennessee. I'm as far away from the island as you can get, all right? Unless you're talking about a little inlet on the Mississippi River, all right? So that doesn't tell you a thing about me. But their names did. There was meaning to them. So when you got captured, they wanted to remove that meaning from you and give you a new meaning. That's why even when, you know, a few weeks ago I preached on the sermon uh, about when we get to heaven, God's going to give us a new name. That's why that's so important is because God is going to say, this is who you really are to me. Mm -hmm. Revelation. Yeah, in Revelation, we'll get there. Revelation, it's on the, if you want to go to the website, a couple of weeks ago, it's up. But there's a, there's a place where it says we will get a new stone with a name written on it that is only known to us and to God. All right, anything else in Esther? So why do you think it's in here? 
It doesn't have the name of God in it. There's no mention of that. Why do you think it's in the book? That sounds like somebody's done a Bethmore Bible study on Esther is what that sounds like, Miss Dottie. Let me read you this. You know, this explains the peace feast of Purim. Do you remember what Purim means? Casting lots, you know. So basically it's casting lots or in a modern phrase, casting dice. All right? Yeah, like that. That's what, huh? It's not, not the dreidel. It's not what it is. No, it's casting dice, casting lots. And so it gives this impression that what seems to be happenstance is really being directed by God. Okay? So here are some things that just happened to happen in Esther. Esther just happens to be Jewish, and she just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is put off for almost a year. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off a request for another day. Her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. They, in turn, just happen to encourage him to build that scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. It just so happens the previous night the mighty king could not sleep a moment's sleep. He just happened to have a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deed. He didn't just happen to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. So consider for a moment the fact that Mordecai happened not to be rewarded for having saved the king's life. How unusual that must have been. Someone who saved the king's life not rewarded. I wonder if Mordecai ever chafed under that. Doesn't he realize what I did for him? It just happened. Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. This king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that seems to be misconstrued. The gallows Haman built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Xerxes wants to kill Haman. There's no such thing as circumstance and coincidence in the book of Esther. All right? Right. To protect his name and his people. Right? From Genesis to Revelation is about God protecting his name and his people and his story that he's telling. All right. Anything else in Esther? Yes. It would have been a it would have been irreparable outside of another miraculous work of God for the Jewish people to have that happen. All right, anything else? All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians. I plan on spending maybe a minute here because y'all don't have any questions about 1 Corinthians. And then we're going to move on. All right, what do you want to know? 1 Corinthians, anything in 1 Corinthians, particularly the last five or six chapters. Right. And the point there is not necessarily a scare tactic. It's just a reminder that it's an important thing and that you don't take it flippantly or lightly. That's an important thing. The 15th chapter is the gospel in a nutshell. There are some rough edges around it that you have to work around, but it's there. 
It's one of my favorite chapters to preach on Easter Sunday because it just says, hey, listen, if this ain't, if Easter ain't true, what are we doing? Ain't no need to be doing anything around here. I love how he just says, if that's true, then our lives are useless. We're the most pitiful people on the face of the planet. All these preachers are liars. Just ridiculous. What hope is there? Other questions you have. But does he forbid the speaking in tongues? Mm-hmm. And in fact, he says, do not forbid it. Yes. I'll give a fuller explanation of that in a minute. It is interesting that as Baptists, sometimes we conveniently skip over the fact that Paul says he spoke in tongues more than anybody else. Yeah. Well, what he says there in between there is, if you can speak in tongues, pray for the gift of interpretation. Because what he... You're going to get my what usually takes me 45 minutes to explain in about 30 seconds to a minute, all right? Maybe longer. Here's what I believe about tongues. I believe that we cannot say today that it is not a valid gift of God. Um, because Paul says, do not forbid it. Paul says he did it. Now, there are those that believe at the end of the apostolic age, when the last apostle died, that gifts like that stopped. I don't see any evidence that that is predicted or described. I see no evidence that the power that was given to the apostles somehow is less for us. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. But I think that it is inappropriate in a community setting for the reasons that Paul lays out there. And what I think he's saying there, what I think the interpretation is of the interpretation part, is this. If you're going to speak in tongues, it ought to be done somewhere outside of the assembly. And then you bring the word that God spoke to you that is for edifying and building up the church. You bring that to a place where you share the interpretation, not the tongues. Okay? There is definitely nowhere in Scripture where it says that I can find that speaking in tongues is required as a proof of salvation. Uh, that's where my biggest issue with um, the Pentecostal movement, Assembly of God, because they believe that you cannot prove your salvation unless you speak in tongues. Um, as Southern Baptists, it's an issue that is definitely a part of who we are. Uh, the outgoing chairman of the International Mission Board has talked about his private prayer language, that he speaks in tongues at home. He never does it in the assembly. Um, which, as you can imagine, when he admitted that, caused quite a bit of firestorm about the Southern Baptist hierarchy. Um, and so I, I believe that what I believe Paul is saying is, it goes back, if you remember two or three weeks ago, if you weren't here two or three weeks ago, review. there were people at Corinth that said they were super spiritual people. They were the spirituals. And the spirituals just happened to be the people that spoke in tongues and had the gifts of healing and thought they could live any way they wanted to live, and it would not bother their witness. And so Paul comes in and says, I wish I could be spiritual like you, but I can't. Because I'm just the least of these, and God has put me on display to shame me. And by the way, you, 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 you know, the sin that's going on, you, you got to get it out. Quit getting drunk before the Lord's Supper. Quit letting people live with their stepmom. Quit doing those kind of things. Oh, and by the way, God does give us all gifts. To some, he gives the gift of prophecy. To some, he gives the gift of mercy. To some, he gives the gift of healing. But it's not important what your gift is. What's important is how do you operate within the body with your gift? Are you a part of the body doing what you're supposed to do with your gift? 
Don't ever say, well, I don't have his gift. It's not his gift you should be concerned about. It's your gift. Oh, and if you're using your gift without using it in love, then you are doing it in the wrong way. Because love is patient and love is kind and love is helpful and love doesn't look back and love doesn't criticize and love doesn't puff up. And there are all kinds of great things, faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest of these. So seek the higher gifts. Seek love. And if you do, by the way, speak in tongues, you ought to look to prophecy instead of tongues because prophecy is what tells people about God in a clear and plain language where tongues just confuses people. And so if it really is about the greater gifts, then go after prophecy because one word of prophecy is better than thousands of words in tongues. Even though I speak in tongues, and I'm not saying tongues are bad, and you may not want, you know, I want you to know that it's okay if you want to do that, but don't come into the assembly speaking in tongues because people are going to be confused because God is a God of order, not of chaos. And so we need to make sure that what happens in the assembly is orderly and right and people understand what God is doing and they're not confused by it. So if you have spoken in tongues in a special language between you and God, then bring whatever God has laid on your heart to the assembly. But don't start talking over the top of each other and don't have women standing up and interrupting everybody and don't have the wives trying to contradict their husbands. Do it in an orderly fashion where somebody sings and then somebody prays and then somebody talks. And then when it's all over, we give the glory to God and we say he is the reason we're here. All right. So that is 12 through 14. And what happens is we dissect it. Well, let's talk about spiritual gifts this week. Let's talk about love this week. Let's talk about tongues this week. Let's talk about women speaking in church this week. And then let's talk about order and chaos this week. That's not what Paul was doing. He talked about that. It was all together. And so tongues is a part of the picture, but it is a minuscule part that Paul seems to put in the background of what's happening. It is, but there, there is, yes. And, and there's dispute about what tongues means here. I mean, there, there is some dispute about that. But this is the only place in the New Testament, I won't say the only place, place. It is the most evident place in the New Testament where he is talking about ecstatic utterance because Paul says nobody else understands you. It's between you and God. There does seem to be, uh, Paul talks about another place that he was caught up, taken up. When he talks about the thorn in the flesh, a thorn in his side, that, that he was taken up and that he was kind of given at the counsel of God. He was there. And so he was raptured, if you want to use that word, into a state where him and God were communicating in a level that didn't happen here on earth. Uh, you see those experiences happening throughout Scripture. And so Paul says there may be validity in those kind of experiences. Um, the purpose of it is, Paul says, it's for personal edification between you and God. That is a special language, if you will. I've I'll I'll never spoken in tongues. I, I don't have that gift. Um, I know people who do, and I know people who have. Uh, when I was at Union, my roommate, for uh, there were four guys from Dyersburg that are roomed together, and my roommate, the first year there, got the gift of speaking in tongues while we were rooming together. And so we had extended conversations about it, and I asked him about it because I figured that's about as I'm going to Baptist Seminary. This is as close as I'm going to get to somebody talking in tongues, you know. And so what we had a discussion, and he talked about, um, and I did see evidence in his life after that of him being more committed and more um, uh, passionate in his following of Jesus. Now, that eventually went away, and he kind of settled back in. But it, it was like a, a momentary ecstatic experience with the Lord, which I don't have any problem saying that those kind of things can and do 
happen. Now, I will tell you this, that in most, in many areas of the world where the gospel is starting in a new way, that tongues shows up a lot. And it can be used as evidence of a supernatural working in your life. Now, the tongues that are found a lot are twofold. One is the ecstatic utterance of somebody just talking, 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 and somebody else saying, hey, what he's saying right now is this to you, and it's something that wouldn't be known except to those people. And so God has revealed through tongues something, or they start speaking in those people's language, like what happens in Acts chapter 2. So I think in evangelistic circles, when it's a new work in a new area in a new way, sometimes God uses it to kind of break the ice, that his power, he's more powerful than their gods. He's more powerful than anything they've been trusting in, that it is him that they need to worship and adore. And so sometimes that happens there. You talking about me doing it? You talking about me prancing back and forth or just talking in tongues? No, I know. And, and, I, and I do think it is confusing for unbelievers. I think that people say that's, that's different or strange. Now, here's my thought. And I'm not claiming this as a prophecy from God, and so it may not be true. I would not be surprised if in 30 years, 20 years, tongues makes a major resurgence in the United States. Because we're becoming more and more of a pagan nation. And in some ways becoming, uh, there was a statistic that numbers-wise, the United States is now the fourth largest lost nation in the world. We have the fourth largest amount of lost people in the world. And so we are not living in a evangelical Christian society. The numbers are in North America, 8 out of 10 now. That's gone, in the last three years, it's gone from 7.5 out of 10 to 8 out of 10 that are lost. So we are a pioneer evangelism kind of place. Even in the state of Tennessee, it's about 6.5 out of 10. We're in the, you know, Nashville is often considered the buckle of the Bible belt. There's not much of a belt anymore. It's kind of frayed. And so, what I'm saying that is, we're going to become much more of a missionary receiving country. We are already one of the top receivers of missionaries. And will soon not be the largest missionary sending country in the world. And so, it would not surprise me if God doing new works in the northwest and the northeast, if there were some not, and I'm not talking about going to a church service and the pastor starts talking. I'm talking about a, a different way. But I don't believe that it is appropriate in the assembly in a weekly worship service. Yes, Ms. Dottie. And there, there are those uh, that, in relation to that, that it brings you to a close relationship with God, would say that there is that passage in Scripture that says that when we don't know how to pray, in groans and in grunts, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And that tongues is kind of that moment when we don't know how to pray, either because of the grief on our heart or um, just the, the perplexity of what's happening in our lives or the ecstasy of being with God, that we don't know how to express that. It's, it's beyond ourselves. And so words cannot longer adequately express that. Now, to believe that means that for those of us that have never spoken in tongues, that we are somehow missing out on agony or perplexity or uh, ecstasy. And I, I don't necessarily believe that. So I don't think it's the only way to achieve that sort of fellowship with the Lord. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a proper term. I'm just saying that 
tongues tongues people that, that, that sounded bad people that advocate tongues would say that that is an instance when well obviously we don't know how to say it and so tongues allow us to express it I, I tend to go with the other that, that there are times when there are times when I'm in prayer and I, I just don't know how to pray and it's not because I've forgotten it's just how do you pray you know I mean as a pastor you're confronted with situations on a regular basis that you just don't know how how do I pray you know I mean you know you just kind of do you just turn it over and say, Lord, I don't even know what to say. Cliff? No. And he probably's not going to speak in English either. We'll understand whatever it is. There are going to be some of us that get to heaven and have taken, uh, uh, I don't know what it will be, ESL, whatever the, whatever Aramaic SL, you know. No. I, I think, you know, people ask me one time, when do you think we'll speak in heaven? So I don't care. I'll know it. You know, if I don't, I'll learn it. <laughs> I'm going to be there with the Lord. Yeah. yeah well, now, now, I don't know about it. Now, I don't know about just being quiet. I mean. All right, other questions in 1 Corinthians. It does say that, yes. Next question. Now, I. Yeah. Here's the problem. Here, there are a couple of problems there. I'm going to read you something. I came prepared for that question. Um. There are a couple of problems. One is the Greek language is much less specific in its introductory clauses than we are. And so a word for the dead, baptizing for the dead, the word there is not a word that always means for and only for. It can mean for, in, around, above, on, in spite of, you know, with reference to. I mean, there are about 14 different definitions that it can mean. So that's an issue. The second issue is Paul throughout the book of Corinthians will say things that they have said or done and not endorse them. Um, So he could be just repeating a practice that is happening. And for them saying, why in the world, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why are you baptizing for the dead? Because he doesn't say, keep on baptizing for the dead, or I think that's a good practice. He just kind of says it. The other issue is there is absolutely nowhere, anywhere in the rest of the Bible that seems to endorse or talk about or develop this. That's why when a particular um, faith system picks up a verse like this and makes it the cornerstone of one of their major practices, it's difficult to do that with one verse of Scripture taken in a context we don't fully understand, which is what the Mormons do. Right. Yeah. Now, I'll read you Gordon Fee, which I had this marked, and then I took my mark out. So tell me, it's four, It's uh, 15, what's the verse number? 29. Because I'm going to read you something. He, he I'm not going to read you everything he writes, because he writes six pages on it. Um. Here's what he says, and I'm going to read a little bit, and so bear with me. I just don't read this much to you, but Gordon Fee is one of the most respected biblical scholars you can find. Conservative, balanced, all of that. He says, partly because the very plethora of options, I just like anybody that uses the word plethora, plethora of options, none of which is compelling as a natural reading, majority of scholars think that Paul is referring in some form to vicarious baptism. That's being baptized for someone. 
But again, there's no unanimity as to what that means. Some things need to be said, however. First, as already noted, this unusual use of a third-person plural, where elsewhere Paul always turns into a community as a whole, suggests that it is not an action the whole community is doing. In other words, there were a few of them that were doing this. So it wasn't a church-wide practice. There's no reason to desire a full knowledge. Second, Paul's noncommittal attitude, while not giving approval, would consider it not to be a serious fault. He doesn't say, don't ever do that. On the other hand, it is difficult to imagine any circumstance under which Paul would think it permissible for a living Christian to be baptized for the sake of unbelievers in general. Such a view, adopted in part by the Mormons, lies totally outside the New Testament understanding of salvation and of baptism. Therefore, the most likely options are, A, that it reflects some believers being baptized for others who either were or were on their way to becoming believers when they died, but had never been baptized. So like the thief on the cross. Or B, that it reflects the concern of members of households for some of their own who had died before becoming believers. Okay? which opens up a whole different discussion, which is household salvation, because there are a few times in Acts when Paul presents the gospel and it says, and the whole household was saved. Okay? What they may expect it to gain is not clear, but one may guess at least they believe baptism to be necessary to enter into the final eschatological kingdom. In any case, everything must be understood as tentative. It probably reflects the Corinthian attitude towards baptism in general. They saw it as a strong, sacramental thing with some magical implications. Perhaps they believed that along with the gift of the Spirit, baptism was their magical point of entry into this new pneumatism, that's the spirit life, seems to have characterized them at every turn. If so, then perhaps some of them were being baptized for others because they saw it as a way of offering similar spirituality to the the departed. But finally, we must admit that we simply do not know. So all that to say... A guy much smarter than me does not know. Now, what I would say is this. After we have read what we have read about the Corinthian church, is there anything within you that thinks they ought to be the model for what we ought to be doing? No. And so even if this was a practice of a few of their believers, there is no way to say, well, there you go. We need to model the Corinthians. Because what good have we seen to model in the Corinthians? That's the appropriate answer. There's not much. It's division. It's strife. There's sin. There's immorality. There's taking advantage of these feathers. There's neglecting others. There's ruining the Lord's Supper. There's speaking in tongues at the expense of others. There's not loving one another. There's chaos in worship. And they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Other than that, they're pretty stable. Right? So, they were collecting money. There we go. So, we will have an offering Sunday. And in fact, somebody go get the plates right now. That's, that sounds like an altar call to giving right there. All right, other questions in 1 Corinthians? Nobody's asking about women being quiet. That, I think, the better understanding of that. Second, again, this is an issue that I think is specific in some ways to the Corinthian church. We talked about the women that were prophesying, that were coming into church with their hair down, which was an unacceptable practice. The The... The reading of this seems to suggest more wives than women in general. There wasn't a word for wives and a word for women. 
But the word here seems to suggest that wives shouldn't speak over the top of their husbands. Um, And the picture that we see in other places and some other writings is that a husband would stand up and say, the Lord has told me this, and the wife would say, no, he didn't. Out loud in the church. Or somebody would get up and start to preach and say, I really think we need to reconsider how we're handling this man who is living with his stepmom. And a woman would say, I don't see any problem with it. Get up. So the issue here is where it's written, the issue is the chaos that is ensuing from, I mean, he says, if, he said it's good to have prophecies, just have three or four, and let them speak in order. And can you imagine if we had four preachers every Sunday? I mean, if they were as good as me, that'd be one thing. But if you just had four preachers, right? I'm just kidding. Can you imagine having four preachers get up and one after the other, they just speak? You notice that the congregation doesn't sing in his order of service. I'm surprised people don't say, there's some churches that don't say, this is Paul's order of service. Right? And this is the way we ought to do church. Because he does give an order of service, doesn't he? Look at that. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians. I'll get there. Chapter 14, verse 26. When you come together, when everyone has a hymn. So everyone gets to sing their favorite hymn. So we just go around the room. What's your favorite one? Let's sing that. Or a word of instruction. You get to choose. A revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these must be done for what reason? The strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak. Don't let more than three go at once. And someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, everybody just be quiet. That's the reason we can't speak in tongues here. None of us have the gift of interpretation. right? Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and others should weigh carefully with what is said. If a relation comes down, comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now imagine that on Sunday morning. Pastor, I got a word. I got to sit down and let him go. So everyone may be instructed. Spirits of prophets are subject to control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace. What he's saying there is God's not going to do that in his worship service where people are contradicting each other one after another, that's not going to happen. As in all the congregations, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but means to be submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Okay? Now, here's the thing that you have to understand. Paul was writing in a context and a community when women speaking out in public was considered wrong. And so Paul is saying, make sure you're not offending people by flaunting your freedom more than you should. I mean, Paul's the same writer that says, in Christ there is no male, there is no female. What he's saying is these disputes ought to be handled more quietly. That's why he says, go home and ask your husband. Discuss it with your husband. Now, notice he doesn't say, go home and just trust everything your husband says. I mean, he says, go home, you ask your husband. And then in the end you eventually are to submit to him, which is no different than what he says in the book of Ephesians. But in Ephesians, he also says husbands ought to love their wives like Christ loves the church. And so it's consistent. The New Testament church in their day and time would have been considered liberal on their views of women because they gave women more opportunities and freedom than anywhere else in society. Uh, we, we see now like uh, places like Afghanistan or 
Iran and how they treat women, and we just think it is ghastly, and it is. But that is not that different from the way the world treated women when the New Testament's written. And so for Paul to even say a statement like, when you come to Christ, there is no male or female, which he does in Galatians, was groundbreaking and earth-shattering. Other places, he calls people prophetesses. So there's obviously women that were used to speak the word of God. If you followed this completely, we would have no women in the choir. We would have no women sing a solo. We would have no women ever say a prayer in any of our functions. And I don't think that's what Paul intended here. When we come back from mission trips, no women would be able to speak because that's prophecy. Now, I know that we think of prophecy as when's the world going to end, but prophecy here doesn't mean that. Prophecy here means speaking forth the Word of God, speaking what God has taught you. Well, but his point about being single was not that women aren't good. His point about being single is that there are no distractions when you're single. Which, I I love my family to death. I would never give them up. But my family requires a great deal of time. If you don't believe it, come spend some time with me, right? It requires a great deal of time. I I went to lunch today with Kevin. You know, I visited with him in the hospital. I said, let's go to lunch. I said, are you ready for three? It requires a lot of time. And so Paul's just saying, I'm single. I ain't got Jeff and Coke. This week they needed to run to Lexington, Kentucky to have a meeting. Well, that's if I want to go to Lexington, Kentucky, I got to call 14 babysitters, and you know Susan's got to set up 14 different plates. You know, I mean, it's just it's I can't decide. They decided that on Saturday that they were going to go on Monday. That can't happen in my life. It ain't going to happen in Jeff's life very much longer. All right, anything else? Psalms or Proverbs? Anything in particular stand out to you this this week in that? All right, I'm going to read something to you as we close. Um, This past week, I finished a book for my Ph.D. I'm back in class, interacting online. My last classroom class I have. uh, I then have to take a comprehensive final examination on everything I've done in the last three and a half years, and then I have to write a 150-page paper. Other than that, I'm really close, all right? And so um, we had to read a book called Scripture and Truth, and the whole point of the book is how do we prove that Scripture is true? How do we prove that it is trustworthy, inerrant, infallible, all that? And in the middle of it, I love what he says here, and I want you just to think about this as you continue to read on, okay? Because there are moments when I I, I don't have a good explanation for the baptism for the day. I, I don't. I, I don't have, when I say I don't have a good explanation, I got plenty of good explanations. I got four or five. I just, there's some mystery there. When you encounter things like that, like what in the world does it mean here? I, I just think about this. It says, Rather than stretch out the arm of our human reason to steady the ark of Scripture. Now, you know that picture, right? The ark starts to fall. God sticks his hand out to steady the ark because he's afraid it's going to fall and be broken. And what happens to him? Okay. Rather than stretch out the arm of our human reason to steady the ark of Scripture when it seems to be in danger of falling, we should approach the Bible with simplicity, reverence, and expectancy, and always with thankfulness knowing it to be the inexplicable mystery that is the Word of God written. 
And so as you go this week and continue reading, just come with simplicity, reverence, and expectancy, thankful knowing that God somehow has placed in your hand His very words of instruction for you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this group. Lord, I pray for strength as they continue, as we continue on in studying your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Book of Job and 2 Corinthians next week. 2 Corinthians, which is 4 Corinthians next week.